This is the 50th sermon in the Gospel of Mark. I'm a little echoey there. Can you, me, is it just me? Can we turn that a little bit? Thank you. This is the 50th sermon in the Gospel of Mark, and we've been on a series from the beginning of Mark till now, and I am grateful to say as a church, your elders desire me to preach through the scriptures. So this means I... Check, okay. This, when I preach through the scriptures, it means that, that I don't necessarily get to pick the text. God, in a sense, in advance, decides what we get to hear each, um, each Sunday. And this morning is an especially precious text. It's a challenging one, but one I hope will be a blessing to all of you. Let's give our attention now to the reading of God's holy word, his inerrant, infallible, and inspired word. It can never be broken. Mark chapter 14, 1 through 11. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly. And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them, but you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Let us pray. Father, your word, unlike the grass of the flowers of the field, which withers, the word of God stands forever. And unlike the rain, which doesn't always come, when your word is poured forth, it always accomplishes the purposes for which you send it. So, Lord, may the words of my mouth as the preacher and the thoughts and reflections of every one of our hearts as hearers, may they be acceptable in your sight. You are our rock and our redeemer, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we come to the end of the school year, I'm reminded how stressful time can be for students. You know, I've never really been great at making good grades in school. I've, I've made up for what I lack in ability for grades in hard work. Same thing was true in track. I was an average runner, but I trained hard, and so I was able to keep up with the pack most of the time. A few of the Henry kids have, have broken the mold, Polly and I. They've done extremely well in their studies. The problem, though, with making good grades or making the honor roll generally is that good grades don't tell you everything you need to know about a student. Good grades prove that a student has learned how to succeed in school, 
but other life lessons may still need to be learned, such as common sense, or good interpersonal skills, or the fear of God. In other words, if God were to give the grades, he'd look at more than just whether you turned in all your homework assignments or completed all the blanks in the workbook. God's honor roll would look at the way you relate first and foremost to his Son and our Lord Jesus Christ. So this passage before us shows a woman who gets bad grades in, in terms of school. She's roundly rebuked by all the disciples who are there. But she gets a good grade in Jesus' in Jesus's book. Our Bible passage tells us about Mary of Bethany, who isn't named here, but she is named in John chapter 12, who with her sister Martha and her brother Lazarus was hosting Jesus at the home of Simon the leper. Now, Simon wasn't a leper at the time. Otherwise, Jesus or no one would have, could have been able to go into the house. But at one point in his history, this man named Simon had recovered from leprosy. Perhaps it was Mary or Lazarus's father or grandfather. We don't know. At some point early on in the feast, which takes place right before the Passover, Mary breaks open an extremely expensive jar of perfumed oil. Now, I did a little research on this. Perfume still comes at quite an expensive price. The most expensive bottle of perfume that I could find cost $30,000 by some French company. I don't remember the name. It had jewel-encrusted diamond lid, and it had something like 10,000 rose petals reduced into one ounce of liquid oil. It's like, wow. So just the expensive perfume isn't new. We've had this for, for generations on end, but especially in the ancient world, expensive perfumes were, were used a lot more liberally, perfumes in general and oils in general, because they didn't have running water like we do. They didn't have the same bathing cultural practices as we do. Perhaps this was a jar that Mary had inherited from her mother or her grandmother, a family heirloom, part of the family legacy. Perhaps it was intended to be used for Mary's wedding or for the death of her um, husband or her children. I don't know. Whatever it was, this jar cost as much as someone would make in an entire year of working. And shock, to the shock of the gathered disciples, perhaps to her brother and sister as well, Mary and Martha, you know, always, didn't always see things eye to eye. She opens this jar, and you can't just take off the lid. You have to crack it open. She cracks open this jar and pours its contents on his head, we have here in Mark, and John includes the fact that she also anointed his feet with the oil as well. Can you imagine the smell that filled the house? He would have been coated with this perfume and would have been smelling of this perfume, I think, for days after this, let alone in that moment when it was first opened up. The apostles are so disturbed by this that they can't contain their feelings within themselves. They're literally growling at her is the word that's used here. They're grumbling, they're murmuring at her is how it says in the King James. What are you doing, woman? They're treating her with contempt. They're troubling her, Jesus says. Mark doesn't tell us who started the complaints. It's just as covered under an ambiguous they. But John's account of this anointing in John chapter 12 is more specific. It's Judas. 
Judas is the one who has troubled Mary. Judas is angry because he's stealing money from the apostolic purse. And the text, which I didn't read, continues, and it says, after this, Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priest in order to betray, them, to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him some silver or some money. And so Judas sought an opportunity to betray him. You see, Judas was stealing money, John tells us, from the apostles' purse, from the collective treasury of the apostolic band. They needed quite a, quite a substantial figure of, of money to, to keep this operation running. We have 12 men traveling for three years throughout Galilee primarily, and then they have others that are traveling with them, including women and children. At one point, we're told the band of disciples reached up to 70 persons or more. This was not a small company, and to arrange lodgings for this number of people would have required a certain amount of money that couldn't just be a small figure. Judas was helping himself, John tells us, to what was in the apostolic purse. And so Judas, when he raises this complaint about the waste of this oil, we know that his complaint isn't sincere. He's not really concerned about the waste that could have been given to the poor, although perhaps at one point in his Christian testimony, he might have been a man who actually cared about the poor. At this point, it's just a guise or a show. Judas is angry because this jar of ointment, if it was going to be used for the apostles, could have been sold in the marketplace, and all that money could have been given to the poor, which Judas would have helped himself to a portion. You know, in one of the churches where I served early on before I was a pastor, one of the deacons of the church was caught stealing money from the offering plate. What was interesting is he only stole $20 a week, but he was eventually caught. And so we find that even amongst the most godly leaders in the church, there are those for whom their conscience does not forbid them to commit very serious crimes, and Judas was one of them. Of course, the most serious crime Judas has yet to commit. But instead of correcting the disciples. And by the way, there's nothing wrong with caring for the poor, but the problem here is that Jesus says you always have the poor with you. Ministry to the poor is what Christians do. It's what Jesus has done his entire ministry. But he's come to a very important moment in the life, in his life as the Messiah, and in fact, in the history of the world. And so something special is called for, which the disciples should have seen, which Mary sees, which Judas is resisting. So instead of correcting the disciples, Jesus defends the woman's honor and action and calls what she did a beautiful thing. He actually welcomes it. He praises her. This is what I'm calling the most extravagant honor which she has shown to him, and Jesus receives it gladly. And immediately after this event, as I've said, Judas leaves, and he doesn't just leave physically. When Judas departs from this scene, he has also left this band permanently and spiritually to betray Jesus over to his enemies who will arrest him, try him, and condemn him to death. So what's amazing, I think, about this passage is the most extravagant honor is bracketed in the beginning and the end by the most heinous of crimes. His, the Jewish leaders and Jesus' friends, men, do the worst thing to Jesus, while an anonymous woman, Mary, does the best thing to Jesus. 
one scandalous act of obedience, Mary's, gets praised for eternity, and a very reasonable act of disobedience, resisting the giving of this money or the wasting of this money, once again attempts to frustrate the plans of God. Wicked men attempt to secure the Savior's death, and a righteous woman honors his life, his mission, and his holy body. So my sermon's title this morning is The Most Extravagant Honor, and we need to learn from this godly woman this morning. We need to learn from her actions. They show us, this woman's behavior shows you what is most important, most precious in this life. It is not the money. It is not anything except honoring Christ, as we will see. Her most extravagant honor teaches us something about God, about Jesus, and it teaches us something about her as well. This most extravagant honor, first of all, was planned by God the Father. It teaches you that God has a plan. You know, God is sovereign over the timing of his redemption. In the beginning of our passage in verses 1 and 2, it says that it was two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. They said, not during the feast. You see, they had in mind with the large crowds that had assembled in Jerusalem. Jerusalem was a city at the time, a population between 30 and 50,000. I'm thinking like, uh, this is like a NASCAR event. It goes to like 250, 300,000 people all come to Jerusalem from all parts of the world for Passover. Calvin observes this, so far as was in their power, the leaders sought to delay to another time. But contrary to their wishes, God hastens the hour. It teaches us that no matter what the the sinful designs are of wicked men and women, God's plan will prevail. And as scary and frustrating and as hard as it may seem at the time, God is in control. But not only does this highlight the sovereign power of God, I think it also shows in contrast the foolishness of the disciples. Once again, they are ignorant about what they should be doing and what they should be saying. All of them, to a man, join Judas in rebuking this woman and troubling her, and Jesus quickly corrects them and praises her. You know, I think probably what happened here is that when Judas raised the concern, all the other disciples, because they respected Judas, because they looked up to him, he was the keeper of the purse, he must have been an organized guy, he, you know, he's an administrator. He was a guy that was probably together, he was with it. You don't count money and not have your ducks in a row. You've got to be able to line up the decimal points, right? And sort of line up your life, too. And so Judas is one of these people. He's a, he's a company man. He's always doing things by the book. And so when he speaks up, all of the disciples listened. And so instead of paying attention to what the Spirit of God was doing, they became a respecter of persons and paid attention to what Judas was doing. And of course, they didn't know yet that he was stealing money from the purse. Had they known, and they will know, that he was about to betray the Lord, things would be different. But we see their ignorance in is that they show honor and preference according to the standards of men, and they're not showing honor and preference according to the standards of God. They're respecting character from a human perspective, but they're disregarding character from a heavenly perspective. They're accepting Judas's complaint And all 11 disciples joined them in. And even though Jesus just told them to stay awake 
be alert, pay attention, listen. They fall asleep in the immediate next scene, and they miss the very point that God is trying to make. This is naive foolishness, but it's really wickedness, because by joining Judas in the complaint, they become Judas's friends instead of Jesus's friends. But even so, God remains in control. So I want to encourage you that God's timing is perfect in your life, no matter what it may seem, no matter how hard it may seem. And we've, we've just passed through a very difficult year with lots of hardships that we've experienced. But in spite of what is going on in the world, God has a plan, and he is working his purpose out. I also want to warn you, especially if you're a young person, about peer pressure. Peer pressure. This is the pressure that you feel in your mind and in your heart, either from the media, social media especially, Facebook, Instagram, and the whole nine, or, or from your friends, actually your friends, if you actually talk to your friends in person and not just Zooming all the time. But the pressure from your friends to act a certain way, to do a certain thing, to like a certain thing, to not like a certain thing, to treat your parents in a certain way, to treat your siblings in a certain way, you become the friend of Judas and the enemy of Jesus when you join them in their complaining, in their mocking, in their scoffing. When you keep your mouth closed when God wants you to open it. When you open your mouth and blab on about things that you know nothing about and try to act cool instead of keeping your mouth closed and silent in the presence of evil. Peer pressure can quickly, quickly find a young person, a student, especially teenagers, on the wrong side of the fence Instead of fighting for God, you're fighting against God. Instead of standing with God's people, you're standing against God's people. Instead of being the church as a, as a godly young person and set an example for the older people in your life, which is what you're called to do, you go quickly astray and you prove to be a fool and naive. Well, not only is this event planned by God the Father, this this most extravagant honor was planned by God the Father. That's my first point. My second point is that this most extravagant honor was permitted by Christ. You know, we know Jesus as a humble, meek, and mild Savior. He's not receiving honors to himself. He's always downplaying and saying, no, 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 and not, not even allowing people to talk about him. But here, in this scene, in this house, Simon the leper, he receives a most extravagant honor. A year's wages. He cracks open that French bottle of jeweled perfume and he allows this woman to pour it on his head and then pour it on his feet. 20, 30, $40,000 worth. Like that, it's gone. How can we understand that Jesus permitted this to happen? What was his reason for allowing this to happen, this extravagant honor? Well, you need a picture first, I think, in terms of the background of how oil was used in the old world. Oil was often used as an aid for celebration during important feasts. It was used as an expression of joy, and so sometimes we read in the Bible of something called the oil of gladness, and oil is used it, it penetrates deeply. Oil has, it soaks into things, doesn't it? And so the, the ancient world would understand oil as figuratively soaking into the bones 
So it was used in healings, it was used in cleansings, it was used in celebrations. Oil and wine often go hand in hand in the Bible. Where the wine is flowing, the oil is flowing. Where the wine is consumed, the oil is being poured out. And so oil is often used in times of celebrations. It also is used in fairly ordinary circumstances in recognition of an important person. Even just a simple guest to your home might have been recognized with an anointing of oil. But this would have just been olive oil from the marketplace, you see, not necessarily an expensive alabaster jar of pure, costly nard. But still, there's a precedence here for what this woman is doing. Oil was also used on special occasions to consecrate and to honor prophets, priests, and kings. And in these things, celebration and an important occasion, recognition of an important person, and consecration of a prophet, priest, and king, you'd think that those 11 or 12 guys would have got it through their heads that this was an important occasion. He's been telling them that he's going to die and he's going to Jerusalem to die and that he's going to die during the feast. You'd think that they'd recognize that on this most important occasion, coming to the home that Simon the the leper, whoever the host was, Lazarus or Martha or somebody, Peter, would have taken out some oil and recognized the master on this important occasion as an important guest in this meal. And knowing what they knew, could they not have anointed him in this hour as the most and greatest prophet, as the Aaronic priest, anointing him with oil that would flow down upon his beard and down upon the corners of his robe, because he's going into Jerusalem as the greater Aaron, bringing peace, finally peace in himself to all the people of God. That peace offering, by the way, in the Old Testament, and oil was involved, would be the the one offering where, where the offerer actually partakes with the mouth of that offering. It's, 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 a, it's an offering that's eaten. And in the next passage, we're going to see that, that, that the Last Supper is celebrated. And that's not an accident. In anointing, in permitting this anointing, I believe Jesus was permitting himself to be seen as an almost victorious king, as a king entering into battle. I see David here going before his brothers. What's the problem, guys? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine who mocks the armies of the living God? Jesus is is coming as that that unrecognized younger brother before a band of, of guys that should have taken care of the problem, and he's about to take out the enemy once and for all. And so they don't recognize it, but he permits himself by this woman to be anointed. Psalm 45, 7, you have been anointed with the oil of gladness above your fellows, speaking of the prince, the, the messianic prince. I love this text. You have anointed my head with oil, Psalm 23, in the presence of my enemies. Literally, Jesus is in the presence of his enemies, and this woman 
either she consciously recognizes it, more likely the Spirit of God is leading her to anoint Jesus at the table of feasting as he prepares to go to his death in the presence of Judas, his enemy. And of course, the, the vultures are hovering at the door as well, waiting to pounce on our Lord Jesus Christ. And she, on, the, on behalf of Almighty God, anoints his head with oil and his cup runneth over as he prepares to do his last and final battle. It's planned by the Father, this extravagant honor. It's permitted by the Son, this extravagant honor. And finally, this most extravagant honor was performed by the woman. Mary, or Miriam, is her name, according to John. This was the same woman whose brother Lazarus had died, one of Jesus' closest friends, and whom Jesus raised from the dead by his powerful word. What does this anointing show you about Mary? as she shows him this extravagant honor. I think it shows you several things. It shows you Mary's gratitude. You would anoint someone potentially as an expression of your gratitude or your appreciation for that person. She was grateful for what Jesus had done for her in raising her brother from death and calling Lazarus out of the grave. She took this most expensive jar of pure ointment. What, what can you compare to the life of your brother? For many sisters... Their brother is their best friend. And Lazarus surely was that for, for Mary. It was like her best friend. And, and God had, had brought her brother back from death through the word of Christ. And the, the ointment did not need to be saved for Mary's wedding. The ointment did not need to be saved for anyone's death or burial. The ointment needed to be used now for Jesus out of gratitude for what he had done. But Mary isn't just thankful. I think Mary actually loves Jesus. I think she loves him. Jesus says, what this woman has done, she has done it in preparation for my burial. She loves him. You see, it's one thing to come to Christ being thankful for what he's done for you. But it's another level of godliness, I believe, to come to Christ because you love him. Yes, we love him because he first loved us, but as you make progress in the Christian faith, you recognize that we love him because he is altogether lovely. She has done a beautiful thing to me, Jesus said, because she sees him as beautiful, as the, as the, as the pinnacle of human beauty in every way, not just his face as handsome, because he wasn't handsome in that way, the Bible tells us, but as a human being, a beautiful man, and she loved him. And she saw this man and his beauty and what he represent in every, in every way. She says, no cost is too high. And so she broke this jar and showed her love for his person. So it shows gratitude. I think it shows love. I th also think it shows you this extravagant honor shows you Mary's loyalty. You know, the men around her were talking about God knows what, and she recognizes that he is going to die. Once again, they're, maybe they're talking about the poor relief program in Jerusalem. I don't know. Certainly at the Passover, it was customary to take a collection for the poor. 
It was called a secondary tithe. And in this, there was some merit to their point. Of course, there was always some merit to what they were saying. But if you're off by an inch, you're off by a mile. And these, these men were off by a mile. She was loyal, though. Loyal to the mission. I wonder if when she was sitting at Jesus' feet, if the sermon that he told her, if the words that he taught her, if the conversation that they had, this, this loyal Mary, contemplative Mary, listening and learning at the feet of the Savior, while Martha was busy about many things, Mary learned. What did she learn? What did she take in when she talked to Jesus and he said, I am the resurrection and the life. And anyone who believes in me, though he die, he will live. She was loyal. This was a loyal woman. She did not let anything get between her and her commitment to advance the cause of her loyal Savior. I think it also shows you not just her gratitude, her love, and her loyalty, but it also shows you her faith. Why would you anoint someone? Why would you cover a, a dead body or a body about to die with the most fragrant perfume? What's so precious about the human body that, that you would cover the body with oils and spices, as will happen with Jesus in John 19.40, Joseph of Marathia prepares the body with traditional spices. Why, why, is, why are these chemicals, these, these plants and these ointments and these, these substances applied to a dying body or to a dead body? It wasn't just the Jews, you see, who had such concern for the body. The Egyptians as well took great care in embalming their dead and sending their dead whole into a tomb into a, a, and, and covering the body with clothing and, and setting objects around this body. What, what's behind this action? Why such concern for the body? Why not just destroy the body? Well, the answer is Mary's faith. Mary was anointing him, Jesus says, in preparation for my burial because Mary believed, I think, Mary believed that Jesus' ministry would not end in death. Yeah, she was anointing his body for burial because she believed that Jesus would rise again. She had a spirit-given insider prompting, moving her to anoint his body for burial, in part for traditional reasons. Yes, the Jews anointed the dead, but also for biblical reasons as well because the bodies of the dead are holy and are to be buried in recognition that we will rise again. This is how Mary honors Christ, is with her faith. And finally, I think it shows us not just her gratitude and her love, her loyalty and her faith, but it shows her solidarity with Christ. By solidarity, I mean this. I mean this. I mean this. As Mary anoints the head of her Savior, she is saying, this man, his destiny, his life, his death, his resurrection is mine. I take what's most precious in my life and I give it to him. I'm identifying with him. Where he goes, I go. Where he dies, I die. And where he rises, I rise. Well, when grades come around for students, 
Usually good students look forward to these moments. They're not surprised. They know every single grade. It's those of us who struggle with grades that we're like, I hope it turns out. When I was a teacher, I used to post grades. This is when computers were starting to be used in the classroom for these purposes, and I'd, I'd post grades um, every week on, on a bulletin board, and students could check their grade, and, and I told them, I said, that grade may not be accurate. You need to take your graded homework assignments because Mr. Henry will make some mistakes from time to time, and they're like, what? My grade could be wrong. What are you talking about? But some students would never check their grades, there were times and there were classes when I was a student, especially in high school and middle school, where I definitely did not check my grades. One year, I remember I was a junior in high school. I was, knew I was doing badly in a class. And for me, badly meant C. It was worse. So in those days, report cards were sent in the mail. I think still sometimes they're sent in the mail. And um, I knew I had to check the mailbox every day to make sure I got the mail first that day. And as the grades came in those days, it was on a, like a thin piece of paper, and all the grades were handwritten on it. And so my bad grade, C, was a worse grade, D. But if you're careful with a pencil, you can make a D look like a B. And so that's what Pastor Phil did. And to add strategy to my sneakiness, I brought the report card to my parents while they were still in bed, not quite awake yet, for them to sign this report card, which had been forged. But my parents knew better. If you haven't figured it out, kids, they know all the tricks in the book. They probably did all the tricks in the book, and they've heard of the ones they haven't done. So I was discovered, and it made things, as you can imagine, worse for myself in the end than if I just owned up to the fact that I got a D in English or chemistry or whatever it was. I was caught in my lie and my deceit, and as every child who's a Christian knows, and every parent knows, it is God's gift for you to be caught in your lies. A wise child, a child who fears God, is a child that thanks God when he or she is caught in a sin. Getting caught in your deceit is the best gift God can give to you. But in our story, Judas didn't get caught. He left with the lie intact, and Jesus, who knew, didn't expose him. For some reason, in the mysterious sovereign and inscrutable plan of God. Judas was allowed to go through with the treachery of turning Jesus over to the religious leaders who would then turn him over to Pilate, who would then turn him over to the soldiers, who would, after beating him mercilessly to an inch of his death, put him on an ugly cross and let him hang there until he died. You see, if you can imagine the scenario of my grades, if I hadn't gotten caught, I would have gotten worse and worse and worse. And my small sin, my small indiscretion, could have turned me into a Judas. 
The good news of the gospel, which I had yet to learn as a high schooler, is this. Jesus died for sinners. Pretending to be righteous doesn't get you anywhere. Lying on behalf of God only makes things worse. Lying to others, as Judas did, about what was really in your heart only hardens or cements you into a pattern of living and relating to others that will ultimately kill you. On the other hand, the gospel says that freedom for a Christian is when you confess your sins. God is faithful, isn't he? Do you know this? Have you experienced this? When you confess your sins, you walk in the light, you release your sins, you let go of them. He is faithful and just to forgive you and to cleanse you by the blood of Jesus, whose body was anointed here before his death, and then again as he died and was buried. And ultimately, in his resurrection, you were made free. My points this morning regarding the most extravagant honor were that it was planned by God, permitted by Christ, and performed by the woman. I want to end in conclusion with the fourth point, which is how I want you to respond to this morning's message. This most extravagant honor should change you. It should affect the way that you live your life as well. And it's in our text, Jesus says, And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done, verse 9, will be told in memory of her. Here are some action steps that I think you should take. First of all, you need to proclaim the good news. You may not be a preacher. You may not be a pastor. You may not be a prophet. But you need to open your mouth and tell people the simple story that God loves me. Jesus died for me. I am a Christian. I am a sinner. Saved by grace. You can say that. I know you can. Try it. I am a sinner saved by grace. Say it. I am a sinner saved by grace. That is a gospel sermon that every one of you can preach. Now, I know you don't want to preach it because when you're around your friends and when you're around your colleagues and when you're in the presence of your employer, you do not want to make a fool of yourself and waste this expensive ointment on just anything. But when the Spirit prompts you, Open your mouth and speak the truth. Proclaim the gospel as this woman did. Why proclaim it? When you proclaim the gospel, you are saying that it is the most important thing in my life. It's like your perfume. It's like your precious ointment. It's the all that you have. Jesus said this woman did what she could. She didn't have money. She She wasn't a preacher. She wasn't a prophet. She did what she could. She took this inherited jar of of priceless ointment, practically speaking, and she broke it open and she poured it on Jesus' head. When you proclaim the gospel, when you live your life for Christ, do what you can. You're not called to do what I'm called to do. You have a special calling. You have a life to live. You have people you know that I'll never meet. You have work to do that I'll never do. My job is to summon you to faithfulness in your life to do what you can to proclaim the gospel and to do it in a way that that plugs your ears to the cries of the people around you what are you doing you're an idiot you're a fool why this waste stop 
and all of, the, all of your friends, you, you might even have parents who are forbidding you to love Christ or who are standing in the way and blocking your way to Christ. But no, I'm going to go to church. I'm going to read my Bible. Your parents might be fighting like cats and dogs and you're going to shut the door and you're going to read the Scriptures and pray to the Lord and sing praises to God. You'll do what you can because that's how valuable Christ is to you. All of your plans... Students, young people, grad students, career people, all of your hopes, all of your ambitions, all of your dreams are set aside so that you can can proclaim what this woman did, that Christ is worth all that I have. You need to deny yourself, deny your inheritances, take up your cross, sell all you have. The rich young ruler was essentially called to do the same thing. And he refused and went away hanging his head unjustified. I don't want anyone to leave this morning, this sermon, like that. I want you to leave hearing the words of Jesus to this beautiful woman. She did what she could. What can you do for Christ? It's not too late. You may be five, you may be 15, you may be 25. Your whole life's in front of you. You may be 55. 65 or 75, many great men and women have started great things for God in their older years. You need to take up your cross no matter what others say, no matter what the cost is, and follow Christ. Proclaiming this also shows the importance of the gospel. You see, the gospel is not about giving to the poor. The disciples fell for Judas's deceit, which is, Well, the most important thing is that we give to the poor. Well, no, that's not the most important thing. We don't hold to what's called the social gospel. We don't love God just by doing good things. We love God by loving Jesus Christ. We're not social workers. This isn't a social agency as a church. We're Christians. This is a ministry of spirit and word. Word and sacrament. We follow Christ. We give our lives to Christ. We serve Christ. We are servants of Christ. We are Christians. And so the most important thing this woman shows us is not the ministry to the poor. Jesus said, you'll always have the poor. But in this moment, your attention is to be on me. It is faith, not good works, which is stressed in this passage. The good work that she did was the work of faith and bringing herself and her substance to the person of Jesus while the men around her were discussing God knows what. She was focused on Christ. Now, I don't mean we don't take care of the poor. He said, after all, the poor you always have with you. The implication is that the ministry to the poor is an ongoing expression of the work of the church. Jesus spent his whole life amongst the poor. He identified himself with the poor. He became poor for our sakes that we might become rich. No, this is not a passage about donating large checks to a building fund or ignoring our duties to the poor for the sake of church ministry, as sometimes has been taught in the Roman Catholic Church. Rather, this means that we take care of poor as Christians by coming to Christ, losing ourselves in Christ, giving ourselves to Christ. Anything he asks of us is now fair game. Our lives become a blank check 
as we serve the risen Lord. And besides, the poor aren't just those who lack material possessions. They are people who are emotionally impoverished, mentally challenged, spiritually damaged, or morally deranged. All the poor and powerless are candidates for the gospel. One of the mottos of Mercy Hill is the last, least, and lost. All are equal at the foot of the cross. As a church, then, we center on the gospel. And from this central place, we emphasize gospel-shaped lives, cross-formed lives, ointment, poured out lives for the Lord Jesus Christ. In mercy ministry, yes. In evangelism, yes. In global missions, in church planting, in raising Christian families, in starting Christian schools and businesses, in getting involved in the issues of the day, in politics and government, in a distinctively Christian manner, and in suffering for the name of Christ when we have to stand alone against a crowd as this woman did. You know, it's sad that you can be a fanatic for sports, but not a fanatic for Christ. You can be extreme in remodeling your home, but you can't be extreme in your affections for Christ. You can be an evangelist for your company's mission statement, but you can't be an evangelist for the Most High God. This is not as it should be. The church is asleep. The church must wake up and do its calling, and this woman is showing us the way. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for Mary. What a memory. What a testimony. What a legacy. All of earth's riches will turn to dust in our very hands. There is but one thing that remains forever, and that is what's done for Christ. So I pray, Lord, that as a people, as individuals, we will truly repent of our sins, that we will love this Lord Jesus. We will stop sitting on the sidelines and cutting corners and hedging our bets and on the one handing and on the other handing, but wholly, fully, truly, and finally give ourselves to Jesus. And in giving ourselves to Christ, Lord, would you please help us to do our part, whatever it may be. Help us to do what we can for Christ and for his kingdom. We ask this in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about us, please visit our website at www.mercyhillnj.org. We meet every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the Church House located at 300 University Boulevard in Glassboro, off of Harvard Avenue, adjacent to the J. Harvey Rogers School and near Rowan University. We'd love for you to join us. Please see our website for directions. Thank you again for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast.